Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, everybody. This is Kai. The show you're about to hear is a special we did in partnership with WABE in Atlanta. That's the public radio station there. So we're giving you the whole hour all at once. As a reminder, this summer we started giving you the weekly show in segments. So you get the first segment on Monday and the second one on Thursdays now. And we did that to give podcast listeners a little more control over how you listen to be able to hear each part of the show on demand, as it were. We're still testing out that approach, honestly. So we welcome your feedback. If you've got thoughts, send an email to notes at WNYC.org and let us know how it's working. Love it or hate it. Okay, anyway, here's the whole entire show for this week. Enjoy. Do you feel represented in American politics today? Oh, that was loaded. I didn't expect that. Um, I'm an international student, so I'm not really into American politics. More than I would have been in the history of Black people in America, but I definitely don't feel fully represented as a Black woman. As a Black woman, we don't really see a lot of representation in Congress or in politics in general. Roe versus Wade, for example, that affected a lot of Black women specifically, so I'm going to say no. Honestly, no. From an age perspective, a lot of them are 60, 70, have been in their seats for so many years. I wouldn't say that they really represent young African-American people or young people of color in general. Especially as a woman right now, the abortion laws bans going on. It's multifaceted how underrepresented black women are in media, politics. I really need more black women in politics. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and welcome to the show. Those voices you heard were students on Howard University's campus in Washington, D.C., that our producer spoke with earlier this week. We're thinking about young Black voters this week because they are a key element of one of the biggest unanswered questions in national politics, and certainly in the upcoming elections. Can the balance of power in the South change? I'm talking about the swath of states and counties that have historically been called the Black Belt, a name technically drawn from its fertile soil, but ultimately drawn from its history as a slave economy. It has always been home to the majority of Black Americans. To this day, more than half of us live in the South, some 23 million people. And it would be difficult to look at the region's political leadership and say those people are truly represented in national politics. But if that fact were to change... That would cause a seismic shift in American politics. So we're going to spend this whole show on the closely watched midterm elections in Georgia, and in particular talking about the young Black voters who have helped upset a very old balance of power in that state. Uh, And, you know, let me also welcome listeners joining us from WABE in Atlanta for this special broadcast there. We hope to hear from you in particular throughout this hour. Help us understand the dynamics in your state, and especially if you're a young Black person, because we're going to take your calls a little later in the hour. But first, I'm joined by someone who has spent the past several weeks talking to students at Black colleges and universities around the country, including in Atlanta. Tremaine Lee is a Pulitzer Prize-winning correspondent for MSNBC and host of the podcast Into America. He's been covering the intersection of race and politics for many years, and he's paying close attention to the midterms in Georgia this year. And Tremaine, thanks for joining the show. Okay, brother, it's good to be here, man. All right. Well, so we'll we'll talk about the conversations you're having uh, on these HBCU campuses shortly, but... Can you first just help me set the stage for why Georgia is so important nationally right now? There is both the Senate race and the governor's race. 
Um, but you think I've sort of accurately framed why they're being so closely watched outside of Georgia? Well, I think, I think Georgia matters in a particular way because it's more recently become in play because of some of the organizing on the ground. Uh, but it also represents, when you think about uh, the history of the Deep South and you think about all of the obstruction and suppression that, that Black folks, that our people have experienced um, for generations and generations, and the fact that it was organizing, this history of organizing, that actually shifted it from red to kind of purplish and that people can actually harness people power and go to places uh, that that. Democrats especially have long written off, right? Um, and I, I remember having a conversation with Stacey Abrams many years ago um, and, and uh, talking about this idea that there are no red counties. There are counties that people haven't engaged with properly, right? And so I think it matters because it's now in play. And given history, it's not like it's Mississippi or Alabama. Georgia is special because of the, the black power base, but also what they've been able to do organizing-wise. Stacey Abrams, who is, of course, running for governor against Brian Kemp. Uh, this is a rematch between the two. Uh and also sort of give us a recap of what happened in 2020. I mean, people likely remember the fight over the recount, but maybe, you know, in line with what you're saying, not the fact that that it was very new for Georgia to be so be, to be a battleground state in the first place. I mean, in your podcast in Into America, you pointed to some eye-popping data about the role that young black voters in particular played in that election. It helps set the stage again for like what the what role young black voters have played in, in making that state in play. Young voters of color represent um, a huge, huge growing number of newly registered voters and voters who turned out, which matters in a, a huge way, especially giving um, all of the suppression efforts that we've been talking about. Right. Um, you know, you have uh, SB 202, this law in Georgia that made it um, illegal for anyone besides the poor worker to hand out water. They were had these voter purges. They were purging people for um, who've moved from locations and or their signatures didn't match. Um, and to have young people organized in a way um, that they represent more than half of the people registered under the age of 40 are black people, right? People of color. So so pushing the line in that way um, mattered in, in a way that people simply just hadn't seen before. Yeah. And I, the, the stat I'm thinking of that I, I had not heard was that Georgia had the highest youth turnout in the country in 2020, I believe, and a third of those people were black. That's those are those are striking numbers. And I think what is is amazing again. This isn't us, um, you know, bandwagoning on Stacey Abrams because she is a politician running for governor right now. But what they've been able to do, registering hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people in Georgia, people who had not been touched before, and young people especially. And that's why we wanted to center on some of these HBCUs and the um, Atlanta um, University Consortium, Clark Atlanta, Morehouse, and uh, and Spelman. What they've been able to do in terms of actually reaching young people and getting them mobilized is a feat in and of itself. So for your episode, as you said, in Atlanta, you told the story of this organizing on the campuses of Spelman, Morehouse, and Clark University, uh, Clark Atlanta University. And you talked to a young woman, I believe her name was Janayev, uh, who was on Clark's campus at the time. And I, I think the story of her political life is an important context for this conversation. She told you about being in middle school when Trayvon Martin was killed. And I want to play that. Listen to this bit of the, of the conversation from the podcast, Into America. I watched that trial on TV with my mother, and she was just like silent tears. And I wasn't crying, but I was just kind of taking in that moment. And I, was, I remember being seriously infuriated. So Janaya took her anger and turned it into action. I'm, I'm literally in middle school. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was just trying to show something like of solidarity. So I remember telling all my friends, everyone who trusted me as a leader, I remember telling them, come to school tomorrow with a hoodie, wear your hoodie over your head. We all walked in with hoodies on our head in the school and the teachers are just like, take that off. We didn't take it off. And they're just like, take it off. We didn't take it off. Janaya said the teachers punished them with no recess that day, but that didn't stop her from taking a stand. I want to hear more about that political backstory for her, Tremaine, because I'm so first off, you know, for listeners who may not know, one of your claims to fame as a journalist is you were among those who helped make the Trayvon Martin story into a national conversation. Um, and, you know, you've covered all the movements that have followed since then. Why did you feel like that was an important part of this of Janaev's story and this story of sort of black youth turning out to vote in both this election and the previous one. 
You know, Janaya, that, that story was so impressive to me because it speaks to this idea that our politics aren't separate from the way we actually live and unfortunately the way we often die. And to hear the story of how Trayvon Martin catalyzed her into action. She wanted to push back against the systems that have been hostile against her and our communities for so very long. And she she grew up in this very kind of rural community where um, she often felt like marginalized and silenced. And that it was the killing of a teenager, not very much you know older than she was, that pushed her into some sort of action um, just spoke volumes. Because I think oftentimes, especially in these conversations that we have, um, in the cable networks and on the, you know, on the radio, um, politics is like this horse race. And it's interesting from afar. And it's, it's about, it's like theory, right? It's, mm-hmm. not, it's, it's, it's like the, this, the ideas that we're positing and wrestling over. When for Janai to see a young boy um, armed with a, a, you know, a can of iced tea and some Skittles be gunned down and she had to mobilize and organize. You know, when I asked, uh, you know, Janai if she consider, considers herself, herself an activist, she said, no, I'm an organizer. Right, activist carries a whole different connotation. When you're organizing, you're touching people, you're you're mobilizing people, you're moving people, and um, you know, it might not seem like a, a big deal now. This idea of losing recess, but you're a kid, and your principals is glaring at you, and the teachers are glaring at you, and and still to stand up in that way and to see that she's carrying that on um, into this moment and energized by it. Um, I think it's, it's kind of beautiful and that real action really matters in real ways in the real world. And, and she represents that. Well, I mean, and sorry to over-intellectualize it too, but I mean, I have to say, you know, so she's a middle schooler in that story, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And she goes on to tell you that then in high school was when uh, she watched Colin Kaepernick take a knee and begin that conversation in the NFL. And I just think about this particular generation uh, mm-hmm. of young Black people um, then coming of age uh, and going to the polls in 2020. And I just, I wonder about that arc, that political, that arc of political life and how often you've encountered that uh, in this group of people. Because again, trying to explain such enormous turnouts uh, in 2018 and 2020 in this group. I think I think for, for better and worse, I don't think young people like Janai in this generation have the luxury of parsing through the issues and the way, you know, it, it affects them. So when they see um, law enforcement, violence by the state, they see, um, you know, a COVID-19, the health issues and, and disproportionately impacting our communities. Um, when you see the um, fallout, again, from COVID and the, the economy, right, and you see mass shootings— and they see the, the the suppression efforts that are still going on today, and they see it as this kind of united assault. And they they see that um, they can utilize social media in a certain way to organize. And so there's this attack on all fronts. And so they're forced to fight back. But yet and still in these conversations, um, you know, I'm asking them, can we politics our way out of some of these disparities? Can we politics our way? Can we vote our way? Can we register our way out of these very, um, you know, base level disparities in America? All the, the threading of white supremacy that still touches us, right? Um, and they say, it's not voting alone. And so they arrive here because they have no other choice, right? They have no real other choice but to use the mechanisms in the machine that they're given. And so as they're trying to tinker and they're trying to change and they're trying to mobilize, um, there still is this underlying frustration that maybe this won't even be enough, right? If I get my friends and my neighbors to come out to vote and we see Stacey Abrams still lose, when we see the promises about police reform and the reform still isn't met, right? And we see the, the income and wealth disparities never changing regardless of which administration is in office, even though we're told that if only we vote, right? And we're told our people died for this. And so they feel mission-driven. And then it's that kind of collision of the other kind of realities, like uh-huh. America just doesn't move like that. Yeah. Well, if we have any young Black people listening for whom Janaev's story sounds familiar, especially if you're in Georgia, give us a call. You want to know what you're thinking about now? Or maybe you've got someone like Janaev in your family who you've watched develop politically, your son, your daughter, perhaps. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with Tremaine Lee, host of the podcast Into America and as correspondent with MSNBC. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be joined by Rose Scott from WABE in Atlanta. Stay with us. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. Last week, we asked Iranian Americans how it felt to witness the protests happening right now in Iran from so far away. Here's one message we received. As an Iranian in the U.S., it's been really difficult watching what's happening in Iran right now. So many people have asked me, with well intentions, how they can help 
and I don't know what to tell them because there's nothing they can do, just like there's nothing I can do but to sit and watch and to amplify their voices and share with my friends what's happening there. It's really, I feel helpless. I feel, I feel very lonely um, and scared for speaking up. But at the same time, I keep telling myself everyone there is literally putting their lives on the line. The least I can do is speak up and say something about it. Because if this continues and something actually changes, I won't have to be afraid anymore. And that's really what this is all about. Thanks to everyone who's been talking to us. If you like hearing messages like these, check out our new Instagram page. We're featuring more voicemails from all our episodes. You can find us with the handle at Notes with Kai. That's K-A-I. And if you heard anything you want to chime in about this week, record a message and send it to us right from our website. It's notesfromamerica.org. Just click the green button to record. Thanks. Talk to you soon. It's Notes from America with Kai Wright. That's me. I'm joined by Tremaine Lee, host of the podcast Into America and a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter on the intersection of race and politics. We're talking about the political story in Georgia this fall and the pivotal role that young Black voters have played in making the contest for both the U.S. Senate seat and the governor's office among the most hotly fought, closely watched races in the country. And we can take your calls. I'm particularly interested in hearing from young Black voters or potential voters, I guess. What's been your political evolution and what's on your mind this election, especially if you're in Georgia? And let me welcome Rose Scott. She is host of Closer Look, which airs every weekday on WABE in Atlanta and, of course, as a podcast. Rose, thanks for joining us. Uh, Not a problem. I appreciate it. So, Rose, I want to play you something that a young woman said to Tremaine in his show. Uh, This is a young woman who has been registering voters at HBCUs in Atlanta. She was in college during the 2018 campaign, which was when Stacey Abrams, of course, lost to the current governor, Brian Kemp. As we've said, they're in a rematch this fall. Uh, Here's what she told Tremaine about watching that race as a young Black woman. A lot of us were under the understanding that Georgia was a hard red state. If we wanted to see progress, then maybe we'd see it in Atlanta and that metro area. But as a state, we were never going to be that progressive. And it was just seeing Stacey Abrams run. Yes, she lost, but yes, it was closer than a lot of us even thought possible at the time. And Rose, I mean, setting aside the the partisan question here, if if that's possible, but just really thinking about the about young black people in general in Atlanta uh, and in and in Georgia, does does what she said resonate with you? Is that something? Is that a common sentiment among black voters in 2018 that like, wow, this changed my understanding of like what we could do in this state? I think so. And I think particularly for her demographic. And first of all, let me say thank you for inviting WAB on this broadcast. And as well, what's up to Tremaine? I love his work. Mm-hmm. You know, I think back to 2008 when Barack Obama was running. And I remember covering the AUC here, which are the, the historically black colleges and universities, Spelman, Clark Atlanta, Morehouse, Morehouse School of Medicine, you name it, everybody over there. And so I remember just the excitement and the motivation. And I think we're seeing that now. We saw it in 2018. We're seeing that now a black woman who is a product of an HBCU, let's be really clear about that, who was running for Mm. the highest elected position in the state of Georgia for governor. And it was closer than what a lot of people thought it would be. And I think where the folks argue about whether or not Georgia has truly turned blue or is it fading out of red or if it's purple, whatever folks want to call it, this state is changing because of the demographics, the population. And also, I think, to what Tremaine has been doing in talking to young folks is that you are seeing this motivation. It's a motivation factor for young voters 
Democrats, progressives, Republicans, but particularly with the young black voters. I think there is a problem, though, and we'll get into that. And that is also engaging young black males and black males in general. And, you know, I started and maybe you're already answering this question, but I started by saying that this election and really the past few elections in Georgia feel like a like like sort of the ultimate bellwether. And again, I mean, not just about electoral politics, but just thinking about race and political representation more broadly in the South. I mean, am I putting too fine a point on that? You, you've been reporting there for 20 plus years. Does it feel like the state is at a crossroads or or, or can that be overstated? No, I, look, Georgia is changing. And that is be, again, I can't, you know, harp on this enough. The, the, the demographics are changing. And I also think the mindsets are changing. It used to be that, okay, if you're a Democrat, you could depend on the Atlanta area and maybe the, a few counties around that. And then the southern counties, the rural parts of Georgia were going to go to Republicans. That's not necessarily a given anymore. But this state's population has changed. I think also, too, remember this now. From probably 1972 to about 2016, unless there was a, a Southern Democrat on the ticket, which would be Bill Clinton, and, and then uh, obviously, uh, look, Republicans held on to Georgia mm-hmm. in terms of, of winning. So, you know, Joe Biden won over Donald Trump. It was by a, a, a very small margin, but he won. It was the narrowest margin of victory in the country that year. So Georgia has been changed, but also, too, I think that the electorate realized that there were some issues with the Trump administration. I think people were tired of some of the the issues with the Trump administration. And I think you saw <laughs> people... I am trying to behave. People in Atlanta know me, so I'm trying to behave. But um, you also saw a lot of folks cross party lines. And that could be an issue this year, for bo- mm. this time, for both parties. Yep. Well, let's hear from some callers. Uh, let's go to Pebram in Atlanta, Georgia. Pebram, welcome to the show. And am I pronouncing your name right? Pedram. Okay. P-E-R-A-M. Like Pedro, only with rum at the end. Thank you. Got it. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for calling in. What do you want to share with us? So uh, I wanted to share that uh, while it is absolutely true that a whole bunch of young people suddenly got engaged, uh, one of the pivotal reasons for that engagement was the specific work of Stacey Abrams and her uh, organization and all the community organizers that she worked with after she had lost a narrow, a narrow uh, loss in 2018. I think just that organization alone, if I'm not mistaken, I bet Rhodes probably knows the number, but I remember hearing something like, over 160,000 people were registered or maybe mm-hmm. 200,000 people. And that was the last election. Yeah. And, and so your point being that, you know, that the, the, the electorate has been expanded and this was, this was the core idea of Stacey Abrams uh, campaign in 2018, right? Tremaine, that she was going to, well, either of you, uh, but I see you nodding, Tremaine, that, that, that she was going to expand the electorate uh, and, and that worked. Yeah, I think for a long time, again, this idea that you can just discount certain communities or always, you know, already bank certain counties and certain groups of people who were underengaged or unengaged. She went out there and did that. But then you have um, organizations who kind of uh, rode in on some of that momentum, like Black Voters Matter and a bunch of other really smart, really dedicated. Forgive me, I had some some Brooklyn sound back there. <laughs> okay. um, uh, but yeah, but so but this idea of, of Stacey Abrams, certainly um, her organizing heft, but also all of that momentum and people saw what was happening and what was possible. And so you had all these other organizations out there also pushing. Like if you go to people and you have a message um, and you want to pull people in the fold, you could do that. You just have to put in the work. And they certainly, you know, put in that work. Right. And Rose, is that energy still in the air? Because I'm thinking again about, you know, Tremaine and I were talking earlier uh, about the particularly for young Black people, the political arc of the last X years. And thinking about 2020, people were in the streets, particularly in Atlanta, um, around George Floyd's murder. Um, And that swept folks into the polls. And I wonder, do you feel that same energy in this election cycle? Well, if, if folks won't be convinced by the energy, let me throw some numbers at you, because as journalists, we have to work with numbers and facts, right? Please do. So... <laughs> Understand this, that right now it is projected that this state is looking at about 11 percent increase than in 2018. We're talking about more than 200,000 people who have applied to vote 
okay, whether they re-registered or they're new voters. That is significant. Now, in terms of the breakdown, if it's Democrat or Republican, depending on who you ask, each will tell you, yo, those are our voters. But that 11%, that 11% is going to be key. And when you look at the polls- That's 11% above 2020. So that's 11% above 2018. Okay. And I think that's important to note because in 2018, we did have a, had a different president, right? Yep, yep. So now we're coming in. So I think that's important when you go from midterms to midterms. I think that's important to note that these 200 plus, 200,000 plus folks who've, who've applied to vote, I mean, early voting starts tomorrow, Kai. Yeah. So we've got to have an extra 200, 216,000 people that could turn any of these races anyway, mm. anyway. Uh, let, let's hear from Andre in Houston, Texas. Andre, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, can you hear me? We can. What do you want to share with us? Uh, wonderful. Uh, well, uh, one thing I was just discussing is uh, that while I appreciate what's going on in Georgia, uh, I think that honestly uh, that we also aren't looking at the bigger picture. There's an interesting book by Charles Blow called The Devil You Know by Charles Blow, A Black Manifesto, Power. Um, Mississippi and Alabama have, if not the same potential, if not more. Mississippi's 40% black. Uh, I'm actually going to be moving to Mississippi in a month, and I want to be a part of the process of empowering our community. Uh, the census says 40% of Mississippi is black. Uh, I'm sure that there's an undercount as well, and so uh, that's clearly one of the biggest potentials we have. While they, uh, we can learn from the example that is ha- that's happening in Georgia, I think that the same thing can happen in Mississippi, if not Alabama as well. And I think that that's an area that we need to invest in and support as well. Thank you for that, And learning Andre. from the example that's done in Georgia. Thank you for that, Andre. And Tremaine, you know, I mean, so you, part of your tour of HBCUs, that included, you talked to folks in Mississippi, you talked to folks in Texas, right. uh, Florida, I think, was on the list. Um, what about this idea of what is happening in Georgia in terms of the registering and mobilizing of Black voters to change the outcome uh, or to change the balance of power exporting to other Southern states, where you similarly, as Andre says, has huge Black populations that have in historically, frankly, disenfranchised. So certainly organizers are trying to use that kind of blueprint that we saw in, in Georgia. But also when you think about Georgia, you have Atlanta, you have DeKalb County, you have all these surrounding counties where a lot of black folks actually live or, or move down from the north and are, are filling out that suburban area. When you get to Mississippi, you start getting outside of Jackson, you're in some of the rural areas. But the way that some of these districts, voting districts have been packed in with black voters, where that's why they haven't been able to really have any power statewide because of the way that these districts are drawn. And so you have this concentrated power around Jackson, but then you have an inability to organize outside of that to really um, harness any real power across the state. And so, you know, Atlanta is just not Mississippi. Mississippi has been, at, you know, at work in suppressing votes and capturing and packing black voters for a very long time. They've mastered it. Well, but I mean, as you talked about in 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 your episode on, on Georgia, you know, uh, that the voter suppression story is a big part of the Georgia political story as well. I mean, as alongside uh, the expansion of the electorate, there has also been a uh, a a wave of new laws uh, that both you and Rose have hinted at. Um, we can talk about them in a little more detail that have restricted voting um, and that have been targeted at black communities. Some would say, I mean, I would argue, uh, mm-hmm. and um, you know, can can that also be exported from state to state? I guess. Well, that's that's certainly been. I mean, that's but that's. I was talking to um, a professor um, at Jackson State University about this very thing, and I was asking about you know voter suppression and and as we see um, black political power growing in Jackson and the influence, have we seen that you know pushing in you know into the state? And he said, you have to understand, suppression is baked in to the Constitution of Mississippi. Black voter disenfranchisement is part of the entire system and always has been. And so he's like, that's the default position. So it's not a matter of, of kind of exporting the, the suppression efforts to a place like Mississippi. Mississippi is is an OG in that kind of suppression game. Okay. And so that's when you, when, when he, the way he described it, that it's baked into the fabric in a certain kind of way where it's written into law early on. And we've just been responding for the last 200 years. I think that says a lot. Rose, uh, that uh, fight over access to voting um, that we've alluded to a few times in Georgia, uh, Mm -hmm. it kind of got obscured in 2020 with the fight over the presidential outcome uh, when Georgia Republicans did not embrace Donald Trump's effort to overturn the results there. um, Mm -hmm. And that became the big story. But um, 
before that, there was quite a story about, uh, in particularly uh, in the in the debate between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams about whether or not uh, there was an infrastructure suppressing black votes. There's been uh, a new law uh, that took effect in 2021 in Georgia that, um, uh, among other things, put some new restrictions on absentee voting. One thing that has stood out that I want to ask mm-hmm. you about that this has become part of the national news is the piece sure. of the law uh, that's a provision banning from pe- banning people from doing stuff like passing out water to voters who are standing in line. From a from from a local perspective, why was that such a big deal to people, and, and why is it said to have targeted black voters? Well, for example, in Fulton County, which has is very populous, you all know that. And you have long lines. You tend to have long lines. Also, in Fulton County and DeKalb County, you might have a huge percentage of older citizens. And look, sometimes it's hot in Georgia in October, <laughs> in November. Okay, we definitely know it's hot in the summer. But the mere fact that you are, that this law was going to prohibit. Now, I want to be very fair about this because there is a, a distance. It's, it's, some, it's some certain, I don't know if it's 150 feet. It's some, 1,000 feet, I don't know what it is. It's, it's some measurement that you can't be, you can't give water. But when you consider that you have long voting lines, okay, and you have a percentage of older folks, or you may have an unexpected person, and you're standing out there, and you, what, someone can't bring you water, or someone can't give you, you know, a slice of pizza, which we've seen that. We've seen organizations come out with donuts and coffee and pizza. So for some people, they say, okay, now you're suppressing. Because let's be clear, for some folks, you know, they will wait in line. They We've had instances where folks didn't get into the poll until after 10 o'clock at night. When folks want to vote, they will stay in line in the rain. And it's very interesting. I remember talking to Ambassador Andy Young about this, mm-hmm. talking about his race. And he was polling very low. And it was raining. It was raining. It was raining. He said it was thunderstorms. People were telling him, oh, Andy, you know what? You may not win this. And he said to me, and he said, you know, black folks stood out there, stood in the rain, and they voted. So whether you want to take away folks' water or donuts, what have you, I think that narrative of, of that suppressing votes, yes, it could be. But let me tell you something. Folks in Atlanta, when they want to vote, they will vote. They will stand in line. Mm-hmm. That Anybody that wants to dispute me on that, they can send me an email, rose at wabe.org. <laughs> You know, I, I mean, yeah, could it be a factor? Yes. Smoke. You can you can email her. If anybody has any problems yeah. with that? You can email. Her. You can email yeah, her, that, not Tremaine. Yeah, yeah you, and, and you don't want to smoke. But what I'm saying is that sometimes, and, and Tremaine, you may back me up on this. You may not. Sometimes, I think we have to be careful about certain narratives that we disseminate in the media. Yes, that is a provision. But if you keep saying it enough and enough, mm. then folks may not even come out to vote. That's not what democracy is about when it, when it comes to voting. Voting and democracy go hand in hand when it's about access, fair and equal and access. Mm. That's well, what we should be that, talking about. Right? When we think about the, the issue with the water handing out food in particular, I think it's, as our friend Adam Serwer said, the cruelty is the point. It's all, and not, yeah. not to jump from voting to water infrastructure in a place like Jackson, but you think about um, the spitefulness that you feel and the animosity sure. between black Jackson and the white power structure. And again, that is the capital. So they're right down the block from people who are, who are suffering in, in grave ways. And that's all, there's, 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 a, there's a animosity and an anger, and some would venture to say um, a, a hate. Right. Mm-hmm. Between the white power structure and the poor sure. black citizens who have the gall and audacity to want fair treatment and control of their city. And so whether it's a, a suppression issue, like, you know, trying to tell people that, you know, don't even come out because it's going to be a long line, can't get any water. That's one thought. The other thought is, my God, that's just cruel. Yeah, it just sounds mean. We got to take a break. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. I'm talking with Rose Scott, host of the Daily News magazine, Closer Look on WABE in Atlanta, and Tremaine Lee, correspondent for, for MSNBC and host of the podcast Into America. More with Rose and Tremaine and more of your calls after a break. So stay with us. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex 
of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And let me play this clip from the late Representative John Lewis. Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We're tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. That was the late Representative John Lewis at the March on Washington in 1963 when he was a young student activist who wanted to see change and see it fast. I'm still joined by Rose Scott of, excuse me, Rose Scott of WABE in Atlanta and Tremaine Lee of MSNBC's Into America podcast. Uh, And Tremaine, I play that John Lewis clip because it makes me think about something one of the young people you interviewed said. Uh, She said that one problem that she has when she's talking with her peers uh, about voting and, and, you know, and trying to register voters is that political parties, and really we're talking about the Democrats here, I I suppose, uh, they promise immediate change that then does not materialize. uh, And then people, young people in particular, are like, forget it. I'm I'm done with that. How often do you hear that story in your conversations? You know, it happens a lot, but first... uh Let's ponder for a second. John Lewis, like we we breathe the same air as John Lewis, mm. right? Such a giant, a, a smaller man, but a <laughs> giant um, who was so courageous. And every time I see those old photos of him uh, in Selma and his backpack on, he just screams like youth, looks so young yeah. um, with such vigor. Um, but in talking to young people, that is um, one of the things that they, when I asked them a question about um, enthusiasm and are people excited and motivated? And they say, it's not that people aren't motivated or engaged, it's that we're promised so much and we put in the work and then nothing materializes from it, especially from the Democrats. And then they point the blame at us when black folks, young black people don't show up. And you say, oh, well, in Milwaukee, this happened. They didn't show up. In in Pennsylvania, they didn't show up. Um, and so that's a serious issue because for organizers especially who do believe in the process, they're trying to get people to participate in the process. It's a hard sell for them to say, hey, just vote. Tell your mom and them to vote. Tell your friends and them to vote. Come on out because this matters. And then in the long run, um, all you get is is some attention when it comes time to get out to vote, yeah. right? These politicians will only stop mm-hmm. by Spelman and Clark and Morehouse when it's the last minute push, mm-hmm. but they're not actually ingratiating themselves in the community. They'll go to the church. They'll talk to the older folks who are reliable every now and then, even though they know they can bank on that vote already, but they're not engaging with the youth. And that's come up from every campus we've been on. That's been a central theme. Rose, what what do you think about that? I heard you uh, 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 I heard you agreeing, but also, you know, somebody else we talked to this week pointed out that you know it's just they're they're tired of how long people stay in office, which I feel like is a related mm-hmm. theme. And I think about you know, I mean, you know, I, I agree, cool John Lewis, but I also think about some of the the black elected officials, particularly in the South, you know, John Lewis amongst them, who stayed in office a really long time. Um, and how much that depresses enthusiasm amongst young voters in particular. Uh, and I just want to throw that to you, Rose. Well, I think Tremaine has a point. And, and consider this, this generation, you know, there has been a disconnection with, I would say, maybe folks 30 and under. You know, when I'm, I don't mind telling my age, I'm in my 50s. So yeah, I could connect with Dr. King and those from the civil rights movement. I, I knew people in my family who were part of the movement. You know, you, you talk to someone now who's who's 21 and it, it may be hard for them to connect. Yeah, because we got Black History Month and every year we talk about Dr. King and every year we talk about John Lewis and every year we talk about these other great civil rights activists. And I think what's been interesting is that perhaps there hasn't been a stronger passing of the torch or perhaps there's been differences in terms of ideology or strategy. You know, I've talked to young 
folks who identify as progressives and they say, yeah, we can borrow a template from the civil rights movement, but this is different. We have to have a different way. We have a different way of, of thinking. We have a different way of mobilizing. We, Dr. King didn't have Twitter. Dr. <laughs> King didn't, they didn't have that. Okay. We have a different generation. I think there's something to be learned from both sides. I think you can learn a lot from the young, from the younger generation to say, okay, how are you all going to mobilize and how are you going to get your message out? But if they feel like they're not being heard, or if they feel like they're only being catered to, as Tremaine mentioned, when it's election time, then yeah, they become disengaged. And I totally understand that. I get tweets all the time from folks that say, look, particularly with black males, they say, look, you know what? You all only want to c- come to us when it's time to vote. But what about the issues that are important to us? Yeah. And I think that's where, and since we're talking about the Democratic Party, that's where the Democratic Party has got to be stronger in. This is not a Stacey Abrams problem with young, with black males. This is a Democrat's problem, and it's been trending for a long time. Well, Tremaine, you were trying to hop in there. Go ahead. I was just going to say that I think I think you're right in that there hasn't been a, a passing of the torch and a grooming of the next generation. Young people have had to snatch the torch, but the fact that they have to take it and they have to have this adversarial sometimes relationship with the machine, because that is the other thing that we've known for a long time. There are black gatekeepers in our communities who they are the power brokers. You go to South Carolina, you know who you're going to go talk to. Yeah. Before you went to Missouri, you knew who you were going to go talk to. And I think this um, generation, um, they're not content with that necessarily. In places where they actually, um, think about in Missouri, you had Ferguson, you had St. Louis, and you have a whole generation of activist leaders emerging from that that had the the power and the mobilizing um, you know, skill and apparatus to actually challenge um, the machine. But everyone's not so fortunate. Mm. Uh, quickly, uh, we have a YouTube question about when does early voting begin? If it's if you're in Georgia, it begins tomorrow. Uh, so uh, <laughs> yes. and otherwise, it's it's different in every state. Uh, but a number of states have started to vote. Um, the election is upon us. Uh, and listeners, we can take your calls more broadly now. I'm going to open it up to everybody. If you've got a question about the midterms, particularly in Georgia, uh, or about the change in Black political power, um, I'm I'm using the word change. I'm not going to say rise or fall for the change in Black political power. Uh, and I do want to talk a little bit about the races in Georgia themselves. Rose, you hinted at this story that has been uh, percolating that there there seems to be some polling that says uh, that black men in particular in Georgia are are saying that they're 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 ready to come out and support Raphael Warnock in his race against Herschel Walker uh, for Senate, but that they are not going to vote for Stacey Abrams. That they prefer the Republican pri- candidate Brian Kemp, or they're going to not vote at all. Is that something you're hearing? Uh, and if so, do you get a sense of what's behind that? Let me start by saying this, and I said this earlier. This narrative of black men not supporting Stacey Abrams, if you want to believe that, that's that shouldn't be surprising because Democrats have had an issue with getting black men, engaging black men in their issues and Period. those policies, those issues that that are directly tied to their quality of life. Now, depending on whom you ask, and let's be really clear about this, I have seen Brian Kemp. At a couple of functions with black folks, I've seen Stacey Abrams at at least two dozen functions with black folks, with black men. Again, going back to what I said earlier about narrative and how we disseminate information. Uh-huh. You know, if you ask one individual and they say, well, I'm not going to vote for Stacey Abrams because of X, Y, Z and I'm a black male. OK, fine. But I think you have to understand at the core of this. This is not a Stacey Abrams problem. This is a Democrat's problem. It's been brewing. Now, if you look at when Governor Kemp defeated Abrams back in, in, in 2018, so about 55,000 55, votes, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Found that you had about 98% of black women voted for Abrams compared with about 88% of black men. You know, that, some will say that that's not bad. If you're looking at where this 9 to 10%, this mm-hmm. 9, 10% that they say Brian Kemp received in votes, was because they were dis- disenfranchised or, or disengaged, rather, excuse me, with Stacey Abrams. I'm not sure that's a fair assessment. I just don't believe that. I think if, if someone votes across party lines, there's a reason for that. And I believe it has to do with the policies and the issues. Now, could Stacey Abrams have done more to engage? I don't know, because I've seen her out. And I've seen Brian Kemp, I know, at two events. So two versus two dozen, I'm not sure that's a fair 
I'm not sure that's a fair analogy there to say then Stacey Abrams has a problem with black men. She did say, I need the black male vote. Sure, she would want more black men voting for her. But I think we have to be careful when we talk about who's not voting from whom if we don't have any real data to, to support that. And I think that's dangerous on both sides. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, what is insane. And obviously, this is the ecosystem, the political ecosystem in which we exist. But 88 percent of black anybody voting for anybody, <laughs> it's a big that's number. a big number. That's a huge, ginormous number. And that there almost takes complete fealty. We need 99%. Who else is that asked of? And I'm not saying mm. that we understand what the context of these two parties and one is openly hostile and one may take uh, black voters for granted. Um, but that sounds insane. But uh, Rose, when you talk about narrative, and I agree wholeheartedly, one thing that we've done, um, and I think unwittingly, we, when we talk about the, 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 the base of the, of the Democratic Party, it's black women. Mm-hmm. and the church True. and the matriarchs. And when you go to the church, you know it's filled with black women. It ain't filled with black men, right? Mm-hmm. All these community organizations, mm-hmm. women will save us and have saved us. But then we add to that, you know, LGBTQ, which we should, we everybody, and it's BIPOC, and it's all these other things, but black men, black men. We are the, the subject and the object of police violence and community violence and the mass incarceration and all the things, right? And so I, w- I actually had a chance to sit down with some Morehouse men and we watched the the Warnock Walker debate. And I asked him that very question because I said, you know, this is ra- a rare moment. Two black men, regardless of their politics, running for Senate in the Deep South in Georgia, mm-hmm. right? Does does that spark anything in, in you? And they said no, because they recognize one is is a puppet, right? They say this. And then I said, well, is it enough to get black men off the sidelines, though? You got two brothers running, maybe your politics skew one way. Is it enough? And, and they say no, because um, we're never, ever engaged. Now, these are Morehouse men. These are smart young men, bright young men, motivated young men who understand politics. But they said it's not enough because no one really cares about us. Mm. No one cares about. We're mm-hmm. always the subject as the problem. It's like the Negro problem. It's the Negro male problem. Mm. Fatherlessness, absenteeism, the, da, 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 the list goes on. And they articulated so clearly that, like, of course, a lot of brothers won't be engaged because we're never, ever directly talked with. We're talked mm-hmm. to, but never with. Mm-hmm. Let's hear from Kenyon Sola in New Haven, Connecticut. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you all for what you've been sharing and discussing tonight, but I wanted to respond specifically to, I think, something that Rose brought up about young Black people being, or college-age students, young people feeling kind of a disconnect from the civil rights movement or the the Mm -hmm. issues that the history of Black liberation movements. I'm a college student, and I just feel that, yes, there's an element of the torch not being passed down, but there's also an element of frustration thinking that the issues we were fighting for 50, 60, 70 years ago are the issues we're still fighting around now. And it's not just not knowing the history or not feeling engaged with the history, but honestly knowing so much of the history that it starts to feel like, whoa, how can it be that we're in the same place and how much faith can I really put in the process mm. if I'm looking back at my history and it's so being repeatedly echoed by what's happening around me today? I think that that is also a major source of disconnection or um, frustration or just like lack of enthusiasm to engage is knowing what's happened in, in the history of Black movements for freedom and seeing that those visions for freedom didn't come to pass and that we're still kind of like fighting for the same thing. Can I can I ask what that means for you in particular? How do you process that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I go back and forth between feeling... I think I've settled on a place of not total disengagement, but really actively honing in on what are the, what's like a tiny scope of what I can really contribute to and feel like I'm um, being part of a community that's fighting on. Because I mean, the other thing is the social media and internet and its impact on how people can engage social movements and social issues, because we're getting fed a lot of content about the world and Mm -hmm. how it's, exploding and falling apart and and we see a lot of images of violence and brutality and they're kind of at our fingertips all the time and it's easy to get overwhelmed by that too and honestly personally i was in high school when trump was elected and i kind of saw that as a indictment of the media landscape in its relation to social change and i saw these images being propagated and i saw people like zoomed into facebook into their phones and and it not having 
any positive impact, mm-hmm. I felt like. So I kind of just took a big step back from engaging yeah. via social media and the internet with things I really care about and really tried to think about, okay, can I get specific about a set of issues that really matters to me? I'm going to stop you there just Um, because we're getting close to time uh, and I want to give Rose a chance to respond to this, but that's interesting. So you, you zeroed in uh, on issues instead of this big, broad thought about politics. Rose, do do you want to chime in to, to, to what Kenya Solis told us? I think she's absolutely right. You know, look, she has certain issues that are tied to her quality of life. And then look, social media, (laughs) news media, and then News you get from your Uncle Bob on Facebook, okay? So the issues that are important to probably her generation, which would be student debt, uh, student loan debt, obviously, you know, the job, workforce development, um, she's absolutely right. And it gets a little bit overwhelming because she wants to hear issues for her generation. And she's not getting that because it's saturated with all this other stuff that we're covering. So I understand that. And she's absolutely right. Now, when you ask about what's the key, then how do how do the parties zone in on this demographic? Well, this is where you go back to old school, back to the 60s and the 50s. This is where politicians have to hit the ground and they have to go into those communities. They have to go to the HBCUs. They have to go to where these young folks are and they have to talk to them, as Tremaine said, and not at them. That's the way that you get them engaged and that's the way you get them to vote whichever way they're going to vote. Tremaine, in uh, the 60 seconds or so we got left, uh, 30 seconds, really, uh, talk to the cynic in me about your effort to talk to young people at HBCUs. It feels like we're always looking to the the kids Mm -hmm. to change the future. (laughs) Um, Why was this important to you? I think this matters because we, one, they they are among our best and brightest, and we should be talking with them because they will be the ones that tinker with and change the future. And kind of piggybacking off what our, our caller said, um, fortunately and unfortunately, what we've seen is young people all across this country on these campuses finding uh, ways to, to provide help to fill in the gaps where the government and politics don't. So whether it's, uh, you know, in Jackson, Mississippi, young organizers and activists who are providing access for reproductive care, getting folks to, to place where they can get an abortion, providing water, whether it's FAMU in Florida, where they're finding ways to study data that might save the oyster and save us all. Unfortunately, because of what she just said, like maybe politics is not the end all be all, but we got to find a way to do it ourselves. And so it was important that we went out across country and did just that. Talk to these folks. Got to leave it there. Tremaine Lee is host of NBC's podcast, Into America. New episodes every Thursday. Rose Scott is host of Closer Look, a daily news magazine on W, excuse me, on WABE in Atlanta. Thank you to you both. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Notes with Kai. That's Notes with K-A-I. If you want to chime in about anything you've heard tonight, you can now leave us a voice message right on our website. Just go to notesfromamerica.org and look for the record button. Matthew Miranda is our live engineer. Music and mixing by Jared Paul. Our team also includes Regina Dahir, Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for spending this time with us, and I will talk to you next week. <laughs>